invite you back to prayer with me one more time as we ask God to give us ears to hear his truth, eyes to see it, and a humble heart to receive it and to change as we need. Let me pray that over you, and I ask you to pray it for yourselves as well. God in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word, the sharper than any two-edged sword that does change us because it is living and active. We ask that you would give us ears to hear your word this morning. We ask you to give us eyes to see it. We would not be blind to your truth. And we ask that as we hear it and see it by your grace, you would give us humble hearts to receive it and to be changed by it as you intend. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. About 10 years ago, I was privileged to serve as the best man in my brother-in-law's wedding. It was a, a joyous experience, and when it came time to the presentation of rings, I reached in my pocket and pulled out a ring, but it wasn't the one he expected. I pulled out a ring pop, and I handed it to him, one of those plastic rings with the candy on top. Well, we, uh, we had a quick chuckle, enjoyed the moment, and then I gave him the real ring, the one with the diamond on it that his soon-to-be wife was actually looking for. <laughs> but, the, but the ring that was displaying the candy was totally unlike the ring that was displaying the diamond. Right? The, the one is plastic and, and probably not worth 10 cents. The other one was made of, of gold and worth hundreds of dollars. And why would the value be so different? because of the item that's being displayed, right? A valuable diamond demands a valuable ring to display it, and a, a worthless piece of candy demands or allows for a mostly worthless ring, a little plastic one, right? A few minutes ago, Chris read from, or just a minute ago, Chris read from Ephesians 3, in verse 10, one of the things it says that the manifold wisdom of God is on display through the local church. It's a little bit like the diamond of the gospel. That's the manifold wisdom of God. The diamond of the gospel is on display. It's held up by the wedding band, the ring of the local church. And because the gospel is infinitely valuable, then it requires us to be very careful to how the local church operates and functions because our job is to display the gospel. This is to say then that if you care about the gospel, you must care about the local church. And because this is so important that we get this and the gospel first and then our role in displaying it, we're actually starting, like I said before, this three-week sort of topical mini-series titled, Who is Parkside? And today we'll focus on what it means to be a local church and then in the, the coming weeks start to unpack that even more. But here's today's sermon in six words. Sermon in six words. The local church displays the gospel. Really simple. The local church displays the gospel, like a wedding band displays and protects a diamond ring. And because the local church displays the gospel, you can see why Jesus would say, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. You see, Jesus has a special prioritization of the local church. He calls Christians to first repent, well, calls people who are not yet Christians to repent and believe the gospel 
to become Christians, take a next step of obedience in baptism, and then to commit to a local church. And yes, we know that some Christians try to exist apart from a local church, but this is a grave error. You see, the concept of a a free agent Christian, so to speak, someone not committed to a local church is simply not found anywhere in the Bible. It's a modern, unbiblical invention. I know that we all know lots of people like that, and it's important that we teach on the importance and the value of the local church because it's what God has designed. And you'll also find many Christian ministries doing really good work in advancing the gospel, but they're not the local church. This doesn't make them bad, it's just to recognize levels of priority. Right? You might think of campus outreach groups. You might think of counseling centers or adoption agencies. You might think of a Christian camp, Christian schools, whether it be elementary, middle school, high school, colleges, seminaries, whatever. Mission agencies, all of these can do good work, but they're not central because according to Jesus, the local church is central. That is to say that the local church displays the gospel, it puts it on display in ways that can only happen in the local church. You say, Justin, why exactly should I care so much about this? Isn't this your job (laughs) to make sure the church runs the right way? That's what you're supposed to be doing. But friends, all over the New Testament, what we see is God giving the priority for the local church and of the local church to the congregation. It's your job to display and protect the gospel. So in Galatians 1, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul holds the congregation accountable for permitting false teaching. In 1 Corinthians 5, and then in 2 Corinthians 2, God gives the congregation the responsibility of admitting and excluding members. Matthew 18 and Acts 6, God gives responsibility to the congregation to resolve disputes among their members. You see, this is your job. And it's my job to teach you in that and to mobilize you in this uh, responsibility that God has given. You, You can hear me say these things, talking about the local church, and think, Justin, aren't there other things that are maybe more urgent this morning? more pressing matters? Aren't there lost people to be evangelized we should be talking about? Aren't there missionaries to be sent and churches to be planted and hurting people to be counseled? Yes, of course we should be urgently pursuing all of those things. But thinking about the local church is actually mission critical for us. You see, it might slow things down a little bit on the front end as anytime you bring people together it does, but it builds a structure that will result in long-term faithful gospel witness in an area. You might think about it this way. Failing to think about the local church is like eating three bags of Skittles before taking off on a marathon. You might get off to a fast start, but you won't have 26 miles of success. See, God's plan is actually much wiser than we ever could have imagined. And so I pray that you will have a vision of the gospel in this church and in this town that is decades, that is centuries long. And for that to happen, you, the congregation, must know how the local church displays and protects the gospel. It cannot be isolated among the pastors. So we ask... How does the local church display the gospel? How does that happen? 
It's a question we're going to ask, and we'll answer it in three ways. We'll say through a particular message, through practical images, and through a purposeful structure. The local church displays the gospel through a particular message, through practical images, and through a purposeful structure. Let's start with the particular message. Certainly there are many messages that you can and should hear when we gather as a church. But there's one message that stands above all the rest. What Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, that which is of first importance. Or elsewhere, he would say, I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Sometimes I summarize the gospel in four little statements. I say, God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, Christ is my life. Simple way to remember the gospel, to say there is a God who is holy, he's totally unlike anyone else, he's morally perfect, he created the world, the entire universe, everything you can see, everything you can't, good. And yet we are not holy, we are not like him, we have limitations, he doesn't. We've turned, we've tried to go our own way and we've broken relationship with him. So we're separated from him and we can't earn our way back to him no matter how hard we try or how much we do. But praise God, the story doesn't end with God is holy, I am not, but that Jesus came and Jesus saves. And he can become your life. If you trust in him, repent of your sins, and in faith believe that his death on the cross paid for your sins, you have, have a right and a restored relationship with God and can have an eternity with him. This is the message of the gospel. That the innocent one, Jesus, was treated as the guilty so the guilty could be innocent. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Boy, that's good news. Not just that you would be treated as if you were righteous, but that you would be righteous. Boy, that's a massive difference in how you see yourself. See, God's just not being charitable and acting like you're righteous, but through the death of Christ, you receive his perfect life and you are actually righteous when he looks down and sees you. It's the message that the greatest came to serve and give up his life for you. Mark 10 says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I said this last week, I'll say it again this week. This is a radically countercultural message that our deepest problems are not external to us. They're not the people around us. They're not the government that's in front of us. They're not the systems of oppression or anything else like that around us. Those all may be problems, but our deepest problems are internal. And our world wants to say the problems are external and the solutions are internal. And the gospel says, no, the problems are actually inside me and they're inside you and there's only one solution, not many solutions, and he's outside of you. It's the man, Jesus Christ. There's a particular message that is required and must be defended at all costs, otherwise it is not good news. That's why Galatians 1, as the gospel began to be distorted, Paul says, you've turned to a different gospel, not that there is any other gospel, because anything besides Christ and him crucified is not good news. It won't save you. It's a particular message. It's how we display the gospel by committing to that and defending it, and protecting it, and displaying it wherever we can. But secondly, there are practical 
images that are significant in how we display the gospel. One theologian counted in the New Testament 96 different images reflecting the local church. I don't know if there's actually 96 or not, but the majority of them focus on the life of the community of the church. Mark Dever has said that the local church is the most visible part of Christian theology. How is the church the most visible part of Christian theology? Well, it's as you go out into the community, you are on display. That's what an unbelieving world sees. That's what it means by that. There's a whole host of these Images, right? You can see that we're the flock, Jesus is the shepherd. We're the bride, he's the groom. We're the house, he's the cornerstone. We're the branches, he's the vine. We're soldiers in his army. There's a whole host of them, but let me zoom in on just three of these images that help us to clearly see here's how we display the gospel. The first image I want to zoom in on is that of the temple, the temple of God. We often hear that in reference to our individual bodies. You are the temple of God, and that's, that's me, God. Spirit lives in the temple of my body, and that's true. But most of the time, when the New Testament refers to the temple, it's referring to us as a body, not as you as your individual singular body. Take 2 Corinthians 6, for example. I believe it's on the screen. We read, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. See, there there is one time in the New Testament where this idea of the temple of God is applied to the individual believer in 1 Corinthians 6. But every other time you hear this temple of God, it's in reference to the whole church, the gathered assembly, the corporate assembly, you might call it. 1 Corinthians 14, we read that God is saying when the whole church gathers, the unbelievers should be able to see, surely God is there in their midst when you gather as the temple of God. Now, you think to the Old Testament, what happens in the temple of God, that's where the presence of God resides. And so there's a special way in the gathering of the church that the presence of God is displayed, experienced, and actually strengthens us. The the word for church in the New Testament, ecclesia, actually means gathering or assembly, that's why it's, it's odd at points to think of churches that don't gather. You're a, you're a gathering that doesn't gather. You're an assembly that doesn't assemble. It, it doesn't make sense with what the word actually means. Right? And, and, and of course, there are, there are times, there are seasons of life where you may not be able to gather. Right? You may have an ongoing health difficulty that for a short or a long season makes it impossible for you to gather. You might, you might simply be on vacation for a week. Once every hundred years or so, there might be a pandemic that intervenes and things get crazy, right? You might be on military deployment. You still want to be a a member at this particular church. There's reasons you may not gather, but the normative experience that should be standard for all is I gather with the church I've committed to because it is the temple of God. And maybe you've heard it said that the, the church is a people, not a place, 
And it's good to focus on the relationships in the church, but it would be more accurate to say the church is a people who gathers in a place. Yes, we're a people, but you can't divorce it from gathering in the place either. That's why Hebrews 10 would say, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but encourage one another. Isn't that interesting? The opposite of not gathering is that we work to be together and encourage each other. I often tell my kids, hey, we gather, we go to church, yes, to learn about God, but also to see who we can encourage. Wouldn't that change the landscape if that was just the mindset on the way to church? Yes, I want to learn. Yes, I want to worship. Yes, I want to grow. And I'm going to see who is it out there that I can encourage today. That's actually what Hebrews 10 says is the appropriate way to think about it. And so when we gather, we experience the presence of God by singing the word. We did that day with Psalm 62 and some other great songs. By praying the word, as Drew just did from Matthew 6, by preaching the word, reading the word, and we'll actually talk about in a minute what I call seeing the word. Not just that you see the words in the Bible, but something more profound even than that. That's the first image, so the temple of God. The second image I want to zoom in on that helps us see how we display the gospel as the local church is as a family. This is probably the most prominent metaphor for the church in the New Testament, that of a family. And it cuts against the individualistic consumer view of church that is so prevalent in our day. Right? None of us would change families because you didn't like the kind of bread that somebody bought or the investment strategies being employed. Yet we often think that way when it comes to church. I say some of the most beautiful conversations I have with our church is with some of our, our older members, our senior saints, who say, Pastor, I really don't prefer that we do it this way. I actually think this might even be unwise. And let's talk about why I think that's unwise. But I am united to you by Christ, the head of this body. And you're my family. And I'm going to stay with you. And we're going to get this done together because we are proclaiming the gospel. And that's what unites us as a family. Oh, that we would have more, more younger saints learning from senior saints who are modeling godliness for us in these ways who truly see the church as their family. See, all, all over the New Testament, we see this language of brothers and sisters, familial language, heirs with Christ, familial language, honoring older men as fathers, older, honoring older women as mothers, familial language. Romans 12, 10, love one another with a brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. You see, one of the things I recognize, though, is as I say the church is a family, that brings with it a whole host of ideas and expectations. Everybody does family a little differently, right? And so it's important to clarify what exactly do we mean by that. See, what, what it doesn't mean, start with that, it does not mean that the church is merely or only a family and that the corporate gathering or the structures of the church are unimportant, that would be a failure to take the whole New Testament seriously. It doesn't mean that the other church members must drop all of their commitments and immediately race to clear their schedule whenever you say, go. Right? Certainly there's a time where we ought to be willing to clear our schedules, drop everything and run and say, my brother, my sister's in need. But we can also selfishly demand that of others and we actually aren't 
loving them. Right? To say that the church is a family is kind of most fundamentally saying it's a commitment to love each other. It's a commitment to love each other. So stated positively, it does mean that we reject mere lip service to familial language and we genuinely show brotherly affection. We recognize that love requires commitment. It does mean that it should be normal to share meals with God's people. It does mean that commitment to a local church isn't quite on the same level as a marital commitment. It's not there, but it's a lot closer to being there than what most of the American church says. And say it that way. See, most church transfers, and hear me, most, not all, come from a loss of commitment to love each other. People leave over preferences or an unwillingness to listen. Or sometimes it's just easier to leave than to work through difficulty. As if a church is a grocery store that stopped carrying my favorite brands, so I'll just grab a different one. It's not the picture of the local church we see in the Bible. And to be committed to love one another means I go beyond merely being interested in your spiritual growth. To be interested in it's like, man, I, I hope that happens. I hope the Reds win today. I doubt they will. I hope they do. But I go beyond that and I say, no, I'm actually actively invested in your spiritual growth. That's what it means to have a commitment to love. Not that I'm merely interested in your spiritual growth, but I'm actively invested in your spiritual growth. So I wonder, as you think about your commitment to love this body, say, who is it in this body that I can say, I have an active investment in their spiritual growth? I'm living out what it means to be in the body of Christ, the family of God. I had a conversation with a brother the other day, uh, it was a couple months ago now, and he said something to this effect. He said, Justin, I thought that the, some of the men in our church would have been done with me by now. He said, I, I made some bad decisions. I thought they would have run away. And they kept pursuing me. They kept loving me even when I wasn't making good decisions. And it makes it a little bit easier for me to believe that God will never give up on me and he will keep loving me when I see his people continuing to love me. It's a beautiful thing to see the gospel on display in the way the church has a commitment to love one another. Let me give a third image. The image of the body. The body we see all over the New Testament. I'll pull one passage out. Ephesians 4, uh, 15 and 16, I believe, is on the screen. We read this and, and see the image of the body there. We're speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is properly working, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Which is to say there's a unity in our diversity. There's many gifts, but one body. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12 would make the exact same case and say there, there are many members of the body, each with different functions, and all the parts are needed. Your left foot might feel sort of insignificant, like you're not really a major part until you lose the left foot. Good luck trying to walk and get anywhere. It's to say you matter. Your gift matters. And friend, don't deprive the body of the gift God has given you because it's meant for the building up of the body, not just your personal enjoyment and satisfaction. 
But there's another part of this body analogy that I think we can often overlook. Yes, we recognize the importance of every member and every gift, but when you think about a body, no part of the body is meant to function independent of the body. You imagine you go on vacation, you're out you know, by the pool or something, and your right arm says, yeah, I think I'll just go swimming by myself today. It's ridiculous, right? You are meant to function as part of the body, not separate from the body, and that's a reality that's baked into the image of the body. And yet sometimes we miss that. You see, to emphasize only the organic parts, the relational parts, and to miss some of the structural parts is to miss a key part of God's design. 1 Timothy 3 speaks to this a little bit. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The structure matters. See, Paul says, I want to come and see you. It's important that I come and see you, Timothy. And I'm working to get there, but there's something I have to write to you about because it's very urgent that you know how to behave in the church of God. This is so urgent, it can't wait for me to get there. I have to write ahead to you. Why is that? Because he says it's the pillar and buttress of the truth. That's what the church is. Take a, take a look at this picture of a pillar here. I think we have that up on the screen. Imagine that top roof part being the diamond of the gospel. It's pretty heavy, pretty significant. You're not going to build paper mache pillars there. It's not going to work. The structure of the pillars matters relative to the weight and value of the thing being held up and displayed. Paul says the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The structure of it matters that it be able to actually hold up and display the gospel. Maybe a different way of saying this is to say that my children are more valuable to me than my house. But my house also protects my children. So I care about my house and the structures of it, and I take care of it because I love my children. Because it protects them in a similar way the church protects and values the truth. So yes, the local church displays the gospel in its relationships, but it also displays and protects the gospel in its structure. Which is to say that if you care about the gospel, then you must also care about the structure of the local church. Not only relationships in the local church, as important as they are. And that brings us to the third point. There's a purposeful structure that impacts how the local church displays the gospel. Yes, there's a particular message. It's how we display the gospel. And yes, there are practical images of the, the temple and the family and the body and a whole bunch of others. But there's a purposeful structure that God lays out. It says, this is how the local church displays the gospel. And this structure has become really beautiful to me over the last few years. I've come to see things in Scripture I hadn't seen before and appreciate it. This is really important because we live in an age where when it comes to church, there's all kinds of novelties that seem to rule the day, all kinds of new ways to do church. Let me just remind you that not everything that glitters is actually gold, especially when it comes to how to do church. 
Sometimes you hear people say, well, we actually decided it was just life together and not assembling or gathering. Well, we actually decided to not preach the word. Let's just do testimony time. Hear people say, well, we found that, that virtual church actually reaches way more people, so we're just an online church. Mind you, ecclesia, gathering, assembly. You're a gathering that doesn't gather, an assembling that doesn't assemble. It doesn't make sense. But maybe for a more practical example, to think about the structure of the church, I'll tell you a quick story. 11 years ago, Emily and I got engaged. This summer, we're celebrating 10 years, super excited for that. And of course, you've got the, the wedding ring and the diamond, and you know, it's burning a hole in your pocket. You can't wait to find a time to give this thing to the woman you love. And I, we go through the whole, the whole thing, plan out the engagement, it, you know, she said yes, you know that, it was all good, give her the ring. Two weeks later, we're looking at her diamond ring, and the prongs that are holding up the diamond have become to get twisted and contorted to the side. We've had the thing for two weeks, thinking, what in the world is going on here? Unfortunately, I bought it from a place that had a money-back guarantee, so we went back to the, the jewelry store and said, hey, let's try and get this thing figured out, you know, maybe, I, I don't know what happened, but can you fix this, can you get it put back? And they wouldn't. Like, no, it's not that big of a deal. You can try to make an appointment, you know, a couple months from now with us if you want. And I'm just looking at these people like they've lost their mind. And then it's, it's this really frustrating thing of, now I've got to take the ring that I just gave to my fiance and figure out what are we going to do with this if they won't fix it. So we actually just gave it back to them. Like, all right, you can have it back. We'll take our money and go across the street somewhere else and get a new ring. We picked it out together. But what we found, and the point of why I tell you the whole story, is that there was actually a design flaw in that particular ring. The structure wasn't correct. And because there was a design flaw, because the structure wasn't right, it wasn't able to properly display and protect the diamond like it was supposed to. And so you can recognize that the diamond is, of the gospel is the most important and that you need a wedding band that's valuable and important, but if you don't get the structure of the wedding band right, there's a design flaw in it, you may fail to protect and display the gospel as a church like God intends you to. So let me give you just a couple, three quick structures of ways God has designed his church to protect and display the gospel. The first and one of the most obvious is through the structures of baptism and communion. Now, I said previously that there, we would talk about seeing the gospel. And that's what happens in baptism and in communion. In baptism, it's a sign that someone has believed in Jesus. It doesn't save them. But saying, I have believed in Jesus, I am one of his followers, and there's an actual picturing where you see this person went down into the water, they died to themselves, they've been raised to newness of life, they've become a new person just as Jesus went into the grave, died, and was raised from death to conquer death, sin, hell, and Satan. We see a picture of the gospel taking place there. It's the sign that you've entered into the covenant. And then in communion, this is a, a family meal of sorts to remember that as Jesus' body was broken, so that little cracker will be broken. And as his blood was poured out on the cross, so that juice will be poured out 
It's a tangible way of seeing and remembering and protecting and displaying the gospel. You've got to understand that those are what the ordinances are for, and when you don't recognize that, you stop displaying and protecting the gospel as you should. It's important to recognize these are given to the church that gathers. So you shouldn't be baptized at a Christian camp. You shouldn't be baptized at you know, a backyard pool party. Shouldn't be baptized as a small group. I had somebody ask me the other day, say, Pastor, what's, what's your counsel on how to take communion as a small group? I, my, my, my counsel is really simple. Don't. It's given to the whole church, not to sub-Christians out running around saying, hey, we're going to be our own little right hand together. There's five of us. Five fingers. Like, no. It's the whole church that this has been given to to display and protect the gospel. Because in some ways, I, honestly, I feel like the way we practice communion right now is a little bit individualistic. So there's parts of it where I'm like, mm, we may tweak that. We may change that a little bit so it can be more of the family meal sort of process to communicate that more clearly. We'll see. There's nothing like imminent happening there. I'm just kind of teasing these things out. Like, as we process, what is this? Why does it matter? And walk through how do we do this as a church family? One of the other structures that displays the gospel is church membership and in conjunction with it, restorative church discipline. I know when I say that, it's like, are you? Justin, I get that membership, church membership might be in the Bible, church discipline might be in the Bible, but it doesn't feel like either of them really display the gospel. It feels like a bit of a stretch. Are you sure about that? I am, and let me try to explain what I mean by that. We start with church membership. What, one of the things we say about membership is that it must be meaningful. Not just membership, but meaningful membership. Meaningful meaning a couple of things. One, we want to make sure as someone joins the church, they're actually a Christian. They've actually believed that God is holy, they are not, Jesus saves, and Christ has become their life. It must be a meaningful membership in that way. But it must go beyond just merely having what we would call regenerate church membership, Christians comprising the church, but meaningful in the sense I have an investment in seeing Christ formed in you. As I said before, not merely being interested or hopeful that Christ would be formed in you, but I'm actively invested in that. That I'm actively working towards that. And so when I make a commitment to join a church, I'm saying that, or you ought to be saying that. Sometimes that, that idea of church membership is met with some resistance, some hostility. Ah, it feels formal, feels structural. I would just say to, um, to, to, to steal kind of a different kind of analogy to our young ladies in the room who are not married, if you find a guy who wants the benefits of marriage without the commitments of marriage, that's a red flag. And it's not quite the same when it comes to the church, but just to say, recognize, it's easy to want the benefits without the commitment and meaningful church membership is a big deal. The flip side of that is what we call restorative church discipline. The purpose of church discipline is to see someone restored. And then there's two parts of it. There's a sort of a formative church discipline and a corrective. Formative church discipline is what ought to be happening in regular conversations in people's homes as you're gathering as a Sunday school class over lunch or coffee, just saying, how can I see Christ formed in you? How can I encourage that in you? How can you encourage that in me? That ought to be just normal in the life of the church, where what you hear from the pulpit isn't the finish line of the word being proclaimed, 
What you hear from the pulpit is actually the starting line, and it begins the race all week where the word is bouncing back and forth, sort of echoing or reverberating among church members, where we're forming Christ in you through his word. And the flip side, then, is a a corrective church discipline where you see, man, you're not following Christ. You're not putting sin to death. I don't see Christ being formed in you. And so an individual lovingly goes and says, brother, sister, I see this. I want to help you grow in Christ, and I want to come alongside you. They say, no, don't listen. Then a a small group goes back. They say, no, they won't listen. The whole church goes back. It's not about shaming people at all, no. It's about saying, as you came into church membership, we had to affirm and confirm you're actually a Christian. And there can come a point where after a long season of running from God, the church can no longer say, we we can't continue to affirm your profession of faith. And so this displays the gospel by upholding the church as a people who are actually crucified with Christ, as a people who make a habit of dying to themselves, not as a perfect people, but a repenting people, a people who regularly say, God is holy, I am not, and I need Jesus to save me. I need him to become my life. And by prioritizing those two things together, we uphold and protect and display the gospel. Let me give you one more. I'll I'll close with this. There are authority structures in the church that help to display and protect the gospel. Most notably, the way biblical submission in authority can help to do that. This starts with Christ, right? Ephesians 5, he's the head of the body. Galatians 3, he bought her with his blood. 1 Peter 5, he's the, great she- or the chief shepherd. Hebrews 13 says he's the great shepherd. So Christ purchases the church by how? Submitting to the will of the Father. He willingly lays down his authority. It's a countercultural model and method. So it's a bit like a triangle. You have Christ at the top, he's the head. Boom. Two other points at the bottom, you have the pastors, the elders, some churches may call them in the congregation, and he delegates authority, certain responsibilities, certain authorities to each of them, but it's understood that he's at the head. And deacons are a critical serving office, but not one that possesses authority as delegated from Christ in that way. Just think about the ways that there's mutual submission happening within the body here. The congregation is called to select pastors, they have that authority, whom they will then submit to. And pastors are called to lead the flock, but in a gentle and in a humble way. They're called to submit to one another as both congregants and as pastors. If if you could be with us for our pastors' meetings, you would regularly hear somebody say, I'm not crazy about this, it's not my favorite, but if the rest of you believe this is how God is leading, I'm happy to submit to you in this. Not fighting for our own rights. And then the pastors actually come back to the congregation and submit to them in the form of church votes. Saying, hey, we think this is how God is leading, but we're actually submitting to you, congregation, because this can't happen unless you vote on it. It ought to be a beautiful picture, and yet I can almost be assured there are many, if not every single person in this room, who has seen it not happen that way. 
Right? You've seen what should have been a lovely, beautiful place displaying the gospel be absolutely ugly and toxic and totally antithetical to the gospel. So how do we think about these things? Well, there, there are two verses that stick out to me. The first one is in 1 Timothy 4. Paul writes to Timothy and instructs him to guard his life, his teaching, his doctrine, and he says, so that all may see your progress. Well, that sounds good. Everybody wants to have their progress be seen by others. I, you see that I'm growing. Everybody wants that. But if you go backwards three steps from there, that implies the only way to make progress is to be at a spot where you are lacking. Right? So you think about what the, the only way for people to see your progress is there to be a point where, yeah, you need to make some progress, buddy. It's not a fun thought to think about as a pastor. Like I, I'd like to be in a spot five years from now where people say, oh, I see your progress. But that also means that I have to recognize I've got progress to make right now. And it means the congregation has to recognize our pastors are merely men. The Puritans said the, the best of men are men at best and extend humility seeing weakness, frailty, brokenness, imperfection. So you think, one of the ways I think about pastoral leadership but you also see in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about the way he shepherded a congregation. And he says, I shepherded them, I led them like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, I, I can't think of a much more vulnerable or needy spot than a newborn child who is still nursing. And I also don't know any adults that like to think of themselves as being that needy. And yet, that's how Paul described the church and said, I led you and I served you with that level of gentleness because you had that level of neediness. None of us want to think that way. That's humbling to think of ourselves that way, right? And so what it points out on both ends of the spectrum, that all may see your progress. Pastors, you don't have it all together. You've got to be humble. You've got to recognize that Christ must be the head of the church because pastors, no matter how good, will never succeed as the head of the church. And congregation, you've got to recognize that you don't have it all together. You've got a lot of flaws, a lot of faults, a lot of needs. And a congregation, no matter how strong, how healthy, how growing, will never succeed as the head of the church because that's Christ's job. And so when we recognize both of those things, it brings us back to the heart of the gospel to say that triangle, Christ, you're the head of the church. And we will both willingly, lovingly lay down authority for each other in a mutual submission to each other, recognizing this is Christ's church and it's his gospel that must be proclaimed. And when I quit fixating on my needs, my desires, my wants, my any of that, it actually liberates me to see Christ is at the head. Are we proclaiming the gospel? How do we grow into that more? He's the diamond, we're the wedding band meant to display and protect the diamond of the gospel. Ephesians 3.10, the church displays the manifold wisdom of God. And what is the manifold wisdom of God? Hidden for ages past, Christ and him crucified. That's what we protect. That's what we display. Most fundamentally as a local church, that's what we are called to do. When we start this series, Who is Parkside? For three weeks, it's critical that we get that right. There's one thing of first importance. 
that we display the gospel in our message, in our relationships, in our structures, in the whole thing. And it reminds me of a song that, that was uh, significant in my life as a college student, thinking about the wisdom of God in the gospel, that the guilty should be treated, the innocent should be treated as the guilty. And the, the lyrics say, what wisdom once devised a plan that all our sin and pride was placed upon the perfect lamb who suffered, bled, and died. How can that be wise? He didn't do anything wrong, and I didn't do anything right. And the next line says, the wisdom of a sovereign God whose greatness will be shown when those who crucified his son rejoice around his throne. Oh, the glories of the cross that you would send your son for us. I gladly count my life as loss that I might come to know the glories of the cross. May that be our cry as individuals and as a church that we may know the glories of the cross and display them in every aspect of our being. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the wisdom of the cross. Where all our sin, all our pride, you placed upon the perfect lamb, your son Jesus, who suffered and bled and died. We look forward to the day when the wisdom of you, the sovereign God, will be shown and those who crucified your son rejoice around your throne. God, I pray you give us humility to see where we are not displaying, protecting the gospel. Give us courage to protect it courage to display it when it's not popular, when it comes with repercussions we don't like, don't want. And may our courage not be found in our own toughness, our own thoughts of ourselves as loving or gospel-centered or culture warriors or, or any of that. May our courage come from your love on display at the cross that you would come and die that we can then gladly count our life as lost, that we might come to know the glories of the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.